At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I'm Brandon Thurston, broadcasting on demand from Buffalo, New York. The day is Friday, July 17th, 2020, and we are in month number four here in the infected states of America. Month number four, four months since WWE and AEW stopped doing events in front of live paying fans in major sports venues. However, in Japan, in New Japan, that is no longer the case. On Saturday and Sunday last week, New Japan ran two events, each at Osaka Joe Hall in Osaka, Japan. Events held at 33% capacity and attended by more than 3,000 spectators on both days, according to the New Japan official website. WWE's next earnings report is coming up at the end of the month. Peacock has launched by NBC Universal. We'll have WWE content on it. Stephanie McMahon made some comments about how female wrestlers are compensated. Peak interest in the demo this week. We'll talk about that. But first, we've got to get into our weekly COVID-19 update. You might be sick of hearing about COVID-19 by now, but things are only getting worse. In Florida, where pro wrestling continues to be taped by WWE and AEW, in Orange County and Duval County respectively, Florida has taken the lead among U.S. states for daily new cases per capita. In an average of daily new cases over the last seven days per 100,000 people, Florida now leads, trailed by Louisiana and Arizona. The case rate in Orange and Duval County slightly higher than that of Florida in general. And no, it's not just due to testing. While testing has increased in Florida since two weeks ago, the positive test result rate remains above 10% in Florida, in Orange County, and in Duval County. How high is the case rate in Florida? Well, it's almost three times that of the United States overall. About 60 times that of the case rate in the United Kingdom. 65 times higher than the case rate in Canada. But maybe you prefer the death rate. If deaths per capita on average over the last seven days are more of your metric, about two and a half people per million in Florida have died each day over the last seven. That's slightly higher than 2.2 in the United States overall. But in Mexico, things are about twice as bad with a seven-day death rate of 4.6 per million. The death rate in the United Kingdom is about four times lower than it is in Mexico 
It's about half of the death rate in the United States, with 1.1 per million dying each day of the last seven. The death rate in Canada, even lower than that, while death rates in Australia and Japan are almost zero. The death rate in the United States, though, remains much lower than it was at its peak back in mid-April. Deaths per capita in July in Florida, however, are about a third higher than they were in April. Nonetheless, wrestling continues on in the state of Florida. And WrestleNomics will continue after this important message from our sponsor. Paid for by DeSantis for COVID. In the middle of a pandemic. Not only do we have a lower death rate, well, we have way lower deaths generally, we have a lower death rate than the Acela Corridor. DC, everyone up there. Floridians need a man who will put optimism above realism. A man who will take the lead on coronavirus. Florida is the new epicenter of the coronavirus. Under Governor Ron DeSantis, Florida has gone from a safe haven for COVID refugees to the nationwide leader in infections. I was the number one landing spot from tens of thousands of people leaving the number one hot zone in the world to come to my state. Floridians need a man who knows the value of new content. People have been starved for content. I mean, we haven't had a lot of new content since the beginning of March. A man who will not back down. We're, we're not rolling back. Like, here's no, no. A man who will take on the bias of left-wing science. And part of the reason is that because you got a lot of people in your profession who waxed poetically for weeks and weeks about how Florida was going to be just like New York. Wait two weeks, Florida's going to be next. Just like Italy, wait two weeks. Well, hell, we're eight weeks away from that, and it hasn't happened. A man who knows that pro wrestling is an essential service. So we've succeeded, and I think that people just don't want to recognize it because it challenges their narrative, it challenges their assumption. And a man who can cut one hell of a pro wrestling promo. So they gotta try to find a boogeyman. Maybe it's that there are black helicopters circling the Department of Health. If you believe that, um, I got a bridge in Brooklyn I'd like to sell you. Nearly 5,000 Floridians have died from COVID, but we know at the end of the day, you care about what affects you. So I think the... Um, Every day, and you are doing nothing. So I You're think. Falsifying information, and you are deceiving the public. Over 4,000 people have died, and you are blaming the protesters. You guys have no plan, and you're doing nothing. Shame on you. So at that time, when we had the. Um, when we were here, we had a whole bunch of concerns about what would end up happening in the next few weeks and, and months. We had concerns about uh, testing. We weren't able to even get tests. We weren't even we weren't even able to get tests for all the people who needed them at the time. Paid for by DeSantis for COVID. In other news. WWE's chief brand officer, Stephanie McMahon, had an interview with SportsMedia.com where she made a few interesting claims, at least one of which we can fact check. McMahon said that the WWE audience is 40% female. She credited content like Total Divas and Total Bellas, the reality programs, saying we saw an increase in our female audience in different platforms and different channels. The 40% stayed for our core programming, she said, 
but Total Divas and Total Bellas, the female viewership, went through the roof. On YouTube, on social media, our female viewership has increased. So does that reflect reality? Well, if you look at WWE's TV viewership, and now TV viewership may not be a perfect sample, TV viewership probably skews older when it comes to thinking about what the WWE audience is, and yes, all the various ways that people might be consuming WWE's core content. But to make a long story short, uh, she may be rounding up or picking the, the higher end of the range, but this is near to the truth, I would say. So what kind of data do we have to look at this claim? Well, Shoba's daily reports, the F18-49 and the M18-49, as well as the F12-34 and the M12-34. to So basically, we have two cross-sections there of the male and female audience. And I've been collecting that for Raw going back to 2015. And at least since 2015, it hasn't changed much. Granted, that was after the debut of Total Divas by a few years there. But anyway, the female-to-male split is somewhere between 30% female on the low end to about 41% female on the higher end in the 18-49. to 49. In the 12-34, to 34, uh, the sample appears to be even more female. I'm just looking at the table for the last few months here. On the high end, we've got 46% female. On the lower end, 33% female. Maybe a, th- a 31 a few weeks ago. Although I'm sure WWE has full access to whatever analytics they've got through YouTube and other platforms that may be informing Stephanie's statement. Elsewhere in the article, McMahon talked about wrestler pay and the gender pay gap. The article reads, McMahon also addressed the pay gap between WWE's male and female performers. She revealed that the company's top female talent earn seven figures, adding that, quote, a lot of our women do out-earn the men right now. Stephanie says she does believe that gender equality will be achieved. She continued, quote, we pay based on performance. So if you're at the main event, if you're drawing the crowd, that's when you're going to be paid the most money because you're the biggest star. When you headline WrestleMania, you're at the top of the game. So that's where I think we have the most opportunity for our women, is to give them the chance to be at the top. I'm not saying at the expense of the men, but they need to be given the same opportunities. End quote. So she's clearly referencing there that Becky Lynch, Ronda Rousey, and Charlotte Flair main evented WrestleMania in 2019. And she's saying that some of the top women on the roster make over a million dollars per year. Some of them out-earning the men. Let's not forget, though, that who gets to be in main events is a subjective decision in the pro wrestling industry, or rather in pro wrestling companies, where the results, the winners and the losers, and the card order are predetermined by people who make the creative decisions in WWE and any other wrestling company. So the decision to allow women to have the opportunity to be at the top of the card is ultimately one that the leadership of a wrestling company must be convinced into doing, and it's not as if wrestling is a perfect meritocracy. In fact, some would say that the only real scoreboard in pro wrestling are the economic metrics, which even are themselves subject to self-fulfilling prophecy, what you might call a chicken in the egg effect. Is somebody over because they're talented or are they over because they were given sufficient opportunity to get over? Is it more the former than the latter or vice versa? More on economic scoreboards later. In other news, on Tuesday, Variety reported what would be on the new streaming service from NBC Universal called Peacock, which went live on July 15th. That's Wednesday, the Wednesday that just passed. 
with Peacock has three different tiers, a free tier with ads, a $4.99 tier still with ads, and a $9.99 tier with no ads. Are you confused by the offering yet? Peacock Premium, so this is not on the free tier, but on, I can't tell if it's the $4.99 tier or the $9.99 tier, but included in the premium tier, among a plethora of content, will be some sports content. Peacock Premium will feature access to live and on-demand sports programming, including more than 175 exclusive premium league matches for the 2020-2021 season. Coverage of events like the Tour de France uh, in, on August 29th to September 30th. Well, I didn't know the Tour de France was, was that long. And more than 100 hours of WWE content, which will be available in August, including WWE Untold and Steve Austin's Broken Skull section, <laughs> sessions and compilations like John Cena's Best WrestleMania Matches. You know, drink every time you see in a commercial or in some sort of form of mainstream media uh, where WWE is being promoted or marketed or advertised and in which the personalities that are being associated from WWE lore are people like Steve Austin or John Cena, you know, people who have not had more than one or two WWE matches uh, per year over the last few years. In other news, WWE announced that on July 30th, a Thursday, WWE will report its Q2 earnings results with a conference call at 5 p.m. Eastern. This is the second time now. It looks like it's going to be a regular thing that at 5 p.m. Eastern, instead of 11 a.m. Eastern as it was previously, 5 p.m. Eastern, WWE will hold its conference call, which if it was like last time, about an hour prior, WWE will release a series of documents, including an earnings release. Okay. Sorry, Siri is talking to me. A series of documents. Uh-oh. Those documents, including key performance indicators, trending schedules, the earnings release, the investor presentation. I don't expect new WWE CFO Christina Salen to be on the call. Maybe she'll make a small appearance at most, but I wouldn't expect her to say much on the call, if anything at all, if she'll even be in the room. I would expect interim CFO Frank A. Riddick III to accompany CEO Vince McMahon and Investor Relations Vice President Michael Weitz throughout the call. And you never know when Vince is going to throw to Paul Levesque, who appears to be standing by in the room at all times. Stephanie even uh, uh, spoke on a call once as well. But the Q2 results again on Thursday, July 30th will be the first quarterly report that will have taken place entirely in the COVID-19 era with no live events of a, of a normal kind. Every live, every event uh, every TV taping happening at the Performance Center in Orlando. So according to the Refinitiv Stock Report Plus, the average of 11 analysts are expecting an earnings per share for WWE for Q2 of $0.14 cents per share, the high end of that at a $0.31 cents per share, the low end of that at a negative $0.02 cents per share. What does that mean? Well, that means we can get an estimate of what analysts think will be the profit, the net income for the quarter. So if we take 14 cents, which is the average analyst's estimate for earnings per share in Q2, take 14 cents and multiply it by all of the WWE outstanding shares. Last quarter, that was about 85 million or 85.1 million. If we assume it's going to be about the same, which it probably will be, because outstanding shares do change over time, but they don't fluctuate wildly. By the way, this is diluted shares, not basic shares. But if we assume it's about 85.1 million 
outstanding diluted shares are to be and multiply that by 14 cents earnings per share. What we get is $11.9 million. So something around $12 million in net income for Q2 seems to be the consensus opinion of a number of analysts who cover WD stock. So I would say, what is, you know, if you're asking yourself, what is a WD stock going to do in reaction to the Q2 report? At least as it stands now, the stock price will probably go up or down, other news notwithstanding, up or down, depending on how far off WB ends up from $12 million in net income for Q2 2020. Should be noted over the last 90 days, though, and I'm not sure what's driving this, but over the last 90 days, according to this report that I'm looking at, the average analyst's estimate for earnings per share, which is basically a, an estimate of profit of net income, these estimates have dropped in half over the last 90 days. And of course, we are now more than 90 days from when COVID-19 really started to affect WWE. And maybe that's only as additional analyses came in, but I don't remember uh, the average analyst estimate being quite this low. But basically, the estimate for WWE's profits for the year, uh, according to the analysts, has fallen in half compared to what they were estimating 90 days ago. That's for the entire year of 2020. And just for the quarter that we're about to get the report for uh, at the end of this month, by the way, Q2 will be uh, covering April, May, and June. So April 1st through June 30th. And as I said, the average analyst estimate right now is 14 cents per share. Just 30 days ago, it was, 70, it was 7.2 cents per share. And 90 days ago, it was 65 cents per share. And as I mentioned earlier, we do have a low analyst estimating at 2 cents per Negative two cents per share. So maybe that could be throwing it off. But even if WB ends 2020 at $1.25 per share, as is the consensus analyst estimate right now, if we multiply 1.247, which is the average analyst estimate for the year, and multiply that by 85.1 million, we still end up with $106 million in net income, which would be an all-time record. The current record is 2018 at $99.6 million in net income for the year. And that 2018 record already, even when you adjusted for inflation, is the highest ever, including the years uh, between 1998 and 2001, when WB was at its height of profit, or its height of popularity, and was also very profitable. As far as revenue, the average analyst uh, expects over a billion, expects $1 billion even in, in uh, revenue for 2020. And estimates both for earnings per share and revenue are even higher for 2021. Other things to, to look out for, we'll probably talk about this maybe more uh, next week. Uh, big news notwithstanding. But we already know what the WrestleMania W Network subscriber numbers were since the Q1 report took place in the middle of April. I think April 23rd, uh, W reported then what the post-WrestleMania uh, subscriber numbers were, which were 1.6 million paid almost a half million on the free trial sub on the day after WrestleMania for a total of about 1 point, or I'm sorry, 2.1 million total free and paid subscribers combined. And the big question, as always, is to see if a lot of those free subscribers who checked out WrestleMania converted to paid. Last year, average subs for Q2 with WrestleMania happening also in early April. So WrestleMania has happened in, in early April for this year and 2019 and 2018. So this is a fairly even comparison here. WrestleMania last year did 
7 million paid subs with 233,000 free. We ended up with an average paid subscriber rate of uh, 1.7 million. So down slightly, maybe a little bit more than slightly for the quarter. That was, though, with a slimmer number of free subs. In 2018, the paid number the day after WrestleMania was 1.8 million, 316,000 on the free sub. Average subs for the quarter were 1.8 million, almost identical to the WrestleMania number itself. The WrestleMania number, if you want to be exact, was 1.808 million. The average paid subs was 1.8 million flat. And so for, for anyone not familiar, the average paid subs refers to, if we take a given period like a quarter, which is what we're usually talking about, you take the three months and you say over those that 90-day period, on a daily average basis, how many subscribers did you have paid? And we focus on that number because that really reflects the revenue that's being driven by the W network. Now, there, there are a variety of price points throughout the world, but rough, roughly if you take the average paid subs and you multiply it by 10, you basically get the monthly revenue that the network is driving. By the way, Peacock was at one point, along with ESPN+, Plus, even there were rumors of Amazon being interested in buying W Network content, probably the pay-per-views, and putting them onto a major streaming service away from the W Network. Of course, that didn't happen. COVID-19 intervened and disrupted those negotiations or forced them to continue, as W might say. So who knows, maybe something will be learned from how people interact with the W content that is on Peacock. I can't see that much interest being had in the content that I see described, uh, W Untold. Broken Skull sessions and some compilations. Um, the peak interest is in the live content for WWE. But maybe WWE gets a relatively small payment for providing some content to Peacock. But I wouldn't expect it to make any kind of a significant difference for WWE financially. But other things to watch for in the Q2 report on July 30th. I would expect W Network subscribers to be down year over year. Which means they would be around 1.6 million average paid. Maybe lower. Consider that the, the pay-per-views in May and June were empty arena affairs. I would expect to see a hit in the ads and sponsors area, although YouTube views uh, have been up dramatically. Still, I expect that revenue segment that includes YouTube revenue along with ads that appear on the W Network and ads that appear in WWE programming, I would expect that revenue segment to be down. Of course, live events will be a zero, or I certainly would expect them to be a zero, since WWE held no events with paying customers at them. I would expect venue merch within the consumer products division to be a zero, since they ran no events that they could sell merchandise at, meaning the only two segments remaining for consumer products would be product licensing, which includes things like console games, mobile games, action figures, and other categories. That usually delivers under $10 million per quarter, and e-commerce, we'll see how the e-commerce business is doing. We'll see how merchandise sales are going online when merchandise can't be sold at venues. And I would expect the, cons well, I would expect those two segments, licensing and e-commerce, to be down year over year from Q2 2019 just based on lower sales because I expect that interest in WWE, which was sort of on a secular decline anyway, probably to be in even more of a decline state due to COVID and due to the reduced quality of the content just by nature of not having large live attendances. So we'll see, but I expect a, a WWE to be quite profitable in the media division, 
which of course includes the W Network core content, ads and sponsors, which I mentioned, and the other segment, which includes things like reality TV series. But in all likelihood, Raw and SmackDown are even more profitable now in the performance center than they would be at major sports venues because of the lower costs associated. Something else to touch on here, and if you if you haven't noticed, uh, if you follow WrestleNomics on Twitter, most of what's talked about here are basically things that have that I, I have tweeted about from the WrestleNomics account in the last seven days. So if you saw the bar graph that I posted where I try to show, based on data from Cage Match, basically what I'm trying to get at is how many wrestlers are working regularly for major companies that employ people full-time with some some thought to how that's affecting or how maybe in the past lower numbers benefited the U.S. Indies. So anyway, what we've got here is basically the criteria is for these companies, uh, WWE, AEW, WCW, ECW, New Japan, Ring of Honor, and Impact, how many wrestlers for each year worked for any of those companies for 10 matches or more and then we just take that going all the way back to 1998 and I'm stacking all of those uh, wrestler counts on top of each other for each year to get an idea. I think what it gives a suggestion about, not an answer to, but what it gives a suggestion about is basically how many wrestlers were under contract. Probably if you're wrestling 10 or more matches for a given company, you probably had a contract for the given company. Not necessarily. Certainly there are exceptions, but it's pretty likely that you had a contract with that company if you wrestled more than 10 matches for that company. Or it's not really contract that I'm trying to get at, but more more like for the purposes of my interests, are you available for indie bookings? If you're wrestling more than 10 matches for, let's say, New Japan even, you might not be available for wrestling bookings. You might not be taking them. Certainly not in all cases, but in some, in many. So the big takeaway I have here is if you go back to the years of 1999 and 2000 with this collection of companies, which are, again, ECW, WCW, AEW, New Japan, Ring of Honor, Impact Wrestling, and WWE, in 1999 and 2000, that number is over 300 wrestlers. And of course, when WCW goes out of business in 2001, that causes this number to drop dramatically. And throughout the the 2000s, that number hovers around 200, 250 and doesn't get too close to 300 until the years of 2013, 14, and 15, where it's in the 290s for each of those years. And again, this is not perfect. Maybe I should have included, included Pro Wrestling Noah in certain years of this, but I think this, this is a good sample. So in 2013, it's 294. 2014, it's 293. 2015, 296. And then there's an explosion. 367 in 2016, 422 in 2017, not much growth from 2017 to 18. Again, it's 422 in 2017, only 426 in 2018. Most of this growth, of course, is coming from WWE, as WWE is competing for talent with, well, with Ring of Honor and with World of Sport in the UK. Then in 2019, that's when AEW is launched at the beginning of that year. The number gets up to almost 500, 498. And that's the year, of course, by the way, that AEW only has three months of running as a weekly promotion. And for 2020, I changed the criteria since we're only halfway through the year. 
I changed the criteria to a minimum of five matches, and the count is 460. So down slightly, and Ring of Honor's uh, slice of the bar is much smaller than it was in previous years, just because they're running so, so fewer shows. So maybe this was a normal year, Ring of Honor would be bigger, and it would be about even, maybe, with the previous year at about 500. So the point is, I think there's one of my big takeaways that, uh, from studying uh, data like this and just observing the wrestling business for the last few years is that I think independent talent was undervalued. I don't know how many years you want to argue it goes back, but in the years leading up to 2016, where we see this explosion of talent being used more frequently by major companies, I think it's apparent that talent was undervalued by the major companies. And in the years of 2016 and the years following that, brought on by the competition for talent and pressures that WWE felt from other wrestling companies and the advent of NXT and additional brands within the company, WWE especially, and then the advent of AEW additionally caused independent talent or what was previously independent talent to be more, I would say, appropriately valued to the point where it is tougher now. I want to say now, but of course, right now, there are no independent wrestling companies or very, very few independent wrestling shows uh, happening. There are a few small shows happening outdoors, but by and large, the weekend independent shows are almost not happening at all at the moment because of COVID. But I think what we've seen over the last year or two years or three years, you know, gradually heading toward 2019, then you might say there's kind of a, a golden era or a great era for independent wrestling is independent wrestling talents was, I would say the concentration of talent was high and undervalued by larger companies. And then in the last few years, that talent was harvested relatively rapidly by larger companies. And of course, companies that of course put that talent under contract and unavailable to independent companies to the point where now, or maybe I should say last year, things were harder for independent wrestling companies in terms of finding talent that was exciting to, to use and to, to put in matches against one another. Although while at the same time, I think independent wrestling was and in, in, does continue to be benefited from the continued proliferation of media, that is of social media, of streaming video, uh, more and more promotions got involved with some sort of streaming video not just YouTube, not just free ad-supported video, but subscription video. I think independentwrestling.tv is, was and is gaining momentum and full disclosure. I've done some analysis work for independentwrestling.tv besides having wrestled for some companies that appear on IWTV, including Beyond Wrestling. But I think while the, the infrastructure is, is increasingly powerful for independent wrestling, at the same time, its talent was siphoned away from it and and for workers for wrestlers that's been a good thing because it means there are more full-time jobs in wrestling as a wrestler because more companies are signing more people and paying more people and because more wrestlers are being drawn up to the higher levels of wrestling that's vacated more spots in independent wrestling or in the in the more sought after positions in, in independent wrestling in the, the super indies, if you will. So again, just to look back over these last, will this be six or seven years, at this stacked column graph that I have here, we went from about 300 wrestlers in major companies 
between the years of 2013 and 15 to about 500 last year in 2019. So that's about a two-thirds increase. And further research could be done, but I would venture to guess that the vast majority of that talent is coming from the UK and US independent scene. A scene, by the way, diminished not only by, in terms of access to talent, diminished not only by wrestlers being signed to exclusive contracts by larger companies, but somewhat now as well being or having their access to talent being diminished after the speaking out movement has rendered a lot of people uh, basically unbookable. So I, I don't think we're going to see a fully operational U.S. indie scene for many, many months to come. I would be surprised if we see that at all in the year 2020. But in the last year or two, I don't think we've seen in the U.S. independent scene anyway, which is probably the one that I can best speak to. I don't think we've seen a rapid re- replenishing of wrestling talent to the indies to the rate that good talent has been subtracted from it. And I think the the independent wrestling promoters who I've spoken to about this subject uh, strongly agree. And so the, the question that I have is, I, I don't just, I don't know if it's just a matter of time before the indies can, you know, if, if this is the new normal that there's going to be about 500 wrestlers who have full-time spots in, in these five or so promotions that we might call major promotions and in relatively rapid order. They got swooped up and taken away from the indie scene, which, you know, great for them. So, but I just don't know, is, is it just going to take a few years or five or maybe even 10 years to reestablish the foundation of independent wrestling? Or is it just the case that anybody above a certain level of talent, if they are also employable, is just going to get signed away from the indies? And, and by that, I mean above a certain level of talent, you know, a, a, a benchmark at which a few years ago they would not have gotten signed at. Because, you know, several, several years ago, the criteria for being signed, perhaps, was much different. You know, in the years where we were near, nearer to the John Laurinaitis, six foot five, 275 pounds notion of what the industry leader was looking for. And I think those days, and, and not that uh, a six foot five, 275 pound you know, wrestling person isn't going to still be you know, an, an attractive prospect, but that I think that the days of undervaluing the super indie worker, the, the days where somebody like Brian Danielson you know, is, is respected as one of the greatest wrestlers in the world, but is working on the indies, I think those days are gone. And again, I think the big question going forward is whether or not independent wrestling can rebuild a foundation of I don't know, talent and knowledge similar to what it once had, just, just both in terms of having stars to put together in exciting matches and having talented wrestlers who less experienced wrestlers can become better through working with you know, and sort of feed on, you know, their talent can feed off one another and their talent can inform one another and make each other better. And that certainly happens to some degree still, or pre-COVID, it certainly was still happening. But a large part of what makes one a better wrestler is wrestling other wrestlers who are better than that wrestler. And in the matter of, of a few years, great wrestlers on the indies became less available. So whenever post-COVID independent wrestling can happen again, I think that's the thing to think about and to, and to work on. And finally we'll get to perhaps the biggest week in the life of the key demographic 
The Life and Times of the P-1849. After this. the match i also won the ratings war as well just like i do every single week let me show you and explain to you how uh, ratings work little kids of course it's great to have the overall winning viewers but the most important thing is the 18 to 49 demographic the demo and le champion has never ever been beaten in that demo i'm the king of the ratings man i'm le champion of the demo i am the demo god That's Chris Jericho this week on AEW Dynamite, letting us know that math is for heels. And uh, I will not weigh in as to whether or not the general mainstream casual wrestling fan waits at 4 p.m. to 4.30 Eastern, constantly clicking and refreshing and pressing F5 on the keyboard at showbuzzdaily.com on Thursday afternoons, impatiently awaiting the posting of the results for viewership from the previous night or whether that's something that only a vocal minority of cantankerous critics have any interest in whatsoever. I won't weigh in on that. But I did write some 2,000 words this week about uh, what the importance is of the key demo and the total audience. And I have even learned some things and in, in, the, in the process of learning some things uh, beyond what I wrote in the article, which you can find at WrestleNomics.com if you haven't already read it, beware this article does descend into a diatribe about why uh, WWE is not economically motivated by its consumer behavior, just as nearly every episode of WrestleNomics Radio does, in fact. So maybe, in fact, if you're listening to this, that is that is your thing, so... You know, I debate here uh, these days in the last, uh, I don't know, year or so about what's what's the best way since I've been doing this podcast. So I I communicate now, not just in the written form, but in the audio form as well. And I debate about what's the best way to, as I admittedly read less and listen to far more words through podcast form than I do through written, certainly, certainly written article form. Um, I debate how important it is or how often I should write things. And I honestly can't remember if I've said all all the things in this article that I've on a podcast that I've written here. And I debate about whether or not to be careful about being redundant in written form versus audio form. And at other times, I feel like I should just hire someone to transcribe the podcast and make it into blog articles. Because I know that there are people who who don't both listen and read the stuff that I do. They do one or the other, or they discover it through one form or another. But anyway, people did seem to appreciate this article. This is called Key Demo and Total Audience, What They Are and How Much Do They Matter? I should say at the front here that I did raise one point in this article that I am not as confident in now. That is that the P2 Plus viewership helps justify what are called affiliate fees or carriage fees. More on that in a minute. The story here is that in the wrestling talk world or wrestling media world, 
and fan discussion world. Suddenly, particularly since the beginning of the Wednesday night competition between AEW Dynamite and WWE NXT, there's been an immense focus in what's called the key demo, or people ages 18 to 49, and how that demographic is more important, in a sense, an economic sense, than the total audience. And this is not something that wrestling fans, observers, commentators, critics, tweeters, much talked about before AEW Dynamite debuted on October 2nd, 2019. In a previous era, in the Monday Night War era, the competition between WWF and WCW programs, Nitro vs. Raw, even SmackDown vs. Thunder on Thursdays, everyone focused on, and the only numbers I much remember being reported were TV ratings, which come in the form of a number point a couple decimal places. So, for example, I have a spreadsheet that I should should probably share on WrestleNomics.com called WCW KPIs. And according to that spreadsheet, the largest combined audience for WF Raw and WCW Nitro, in other words, the night, the Monday night, when probably the most people were watching wrestling in the United States was May 24th, 1999. And I can't tell you how many viewers are watching, but what I can tell you is that on May 24th, 1999, WF Raw did a 7.2 rating which I think is its biggest rating ever. Um, I would guess that that is the night that there's a Steve Austin versus versus Undertaker singles match. Uh, But anyway, a 7.2 rating to WCW's 3.8, which is nowhere near its biggest rating ever. But anyway, that combines to a total 11.0. And as I explained in the article, there are various kinds of ratings. I don't know whether this is a national rating, a coverage rating. I would guess maybe it's a national rating. Let's say it is. It would be easier (laughs) to say what I want to say next if it is a national rating. So a national rating means that uh, essentially ratings are percentages. I don't know why ratings are never uh, presented with the percentage symbol after them. Maybe they would be prone to misinterpretation that way. But anyway, ratings are basically percentages. In the case of a national rating, this means this is the percentage of people in the nation who are watching this given program. So if this is a national rating, this means that 7.2% of the people in the United States, to be honest, I don't know if that means you have to own a TV or not, but obviously the vast majority of U.S. homes have a TV in them. 7.2% of them were watching WF Raw. 3.8% of them were watching WCW Nitro for a total combined rating of 11% 11 of people. I think that's what that means. 11% of people in the U.S. were watching wrestling. On Monday night, May 24th, 1999, the largest, the largest combined rating of the Monday Night War era. That is just slightly lower than the 11.6 and 11.1 that I'm able to find records of for two episodes of Saturday Night Main Event. But anyway, that's approximately what a, a rating means. And so we dwelled on ratings for a long time and immortalized them in the now in the the nostalgia of the Monday Night War era. And no one at that time talked about the key demo, at least in wrestling conversations. According to an article I found on Multichannel.com from Multichannel News in 2002, this article characterizes, quote, absolute household eyeballs during the 1980s and 1990s having given way to a more narrowly defined demographic-oriented focus. Networks now try to convince advertisers that they're reaching viewers that can draw premium CPMs. And CPM stands for 
cost per thousand. That's right. CPM cost per thousand. I think there's some, some Latin involved, but anyway, the, the article characterizes this as, as if it's a, a, a new event. Networks are convincing advertisers that they can draw premium CPMs. It goes on and no demographic is more desirable than the 18 to 49 group of adults. So a couple things. Number one, why that group? And secondly, is that really the correct timeline? Why 18 to 49? I, I think it's because these are adults. So they're, they're not children who are still in school and don't have full-time jobs. And they're not over the age of 49, like Chris Jericho will be next year, who are set in their ways and already they have solid brand relationships, I think the idea is. So they, they're 18 to 49, they have some money, they're persuadable. So that's the ideal group that you want to advertise to in general. So that's why that demo matters to advertisers. It probably greatly depends on the product, I would imagine. And clearly, you can look at the Showbuzz Daily tables and see, the I think it's nine different demographics that they, they report in their table. Obviously, there are plenty of products out there that are that need to be targeted more towards younger audiences, and other products need to be targeted toward older audiences. But anyway, so this, this article characterizes this as if this is an advent that comes after the 90s, after the Monday Night War era. But then a very kind reader reached out to me after reading the article and said that he's someone who actually worked uh, as an advertising buyer as far back as 1980 and says that already at that time he was buying very specific demographics and he did not get the impression that that was something new in 1980. And he added that he has never made an ad purchase against the 2 plus, that is the, what we would call the total audience, the P2 plus demographic. So I, I think what is happening in wrestling now that has so changed the focus, I think clearly AEW values its performance in the, P, uh, the P1849, the key demo, and because that's what its broadcast partner Warner Media wants, the parent company of TNT. And I would imagine that AEW has given certain people in wrestling media the impression that that is the key demo, that is the demo that matters more, or matters the most, above the total audience. Besides, obviously, saying so publicly, and even having Chris Jericho cut a promo about it. So my question that I, I still don't know the answer to is, does USA Network, or even Fox, do they value the key demo? in the same way that TNT apparently does. Do USA Network or Fox or any other network for that matter, does every network, and I believe it's generally true that the 18 to 49 demographic is generally the one that is most important to advertisers. I'm just wondering if everybody looks at it to the same degree and the same extent that TNT does. I'm just wondering if other networks have different advertising sales strategies where other demos maybe uh, have more more focus on them. I don't know. And we've never seen um, WWE in their public reporting focus on the key demo that I can recall. Uh, WWE's key performance indicators have been showing national and coverage TV ratings for the total audience for years. They just recently switched over to viewership, showing viewership for the total audience. And it's not as if they don't have something to brag about there. They They do quite well in the key demo. You know, Raw and SmackDown often rank highly, sometimes are the leader on their night uh, on cable. And, and, and now at, well, with Fox, uh, with SmackDown on Fox, it, it's often 
the leader in the key demo uh, on broadcast TV. And I can't recall a time where I found anything on corporate.w.com that is emphasized that. And I did find at least one press release from USA Network that celebrated the key demo and the P2554 demo as the people between the ages of 25 and 54. And on the issue of carriage fees or affiliate fees, that is the, the money that say the USA Network or TNT get from the cable or satellite company, I think it's likely that in the case of WRAW, which has been on the USA Network for many years, is contractually a part of the deal that the USA Network makes with the cable and satellite providers. So when a network makes a deal with a carrier, some of the covenants in the agreement, some of the conditions may be that you know, the network is going to provide a certain number of hours of live sports or a certain number of hours of original content. And AEW might be sort of incidentally fulfilling that condition in terms of being some sort of live content and original content, but larger properties, maybe like WRAW. I'm not sure about SmackDown because it's a newer program with Fox. I'm more doubtful that that's the case for NXT, which has now only been on the USA Network for less than a year. But probably WRAW falls into this category of being one of the programs that may be named in the affiliate contracts. And in fact, in terms of revenue, in the case of a program like Raw, we know the USA Network is paying WWE an average annual value over the course of five years, average annual value of $265 million per year to get Raw, to put it on USA Network. So $265 million per year is the cost of having Raw. But the USA Network is probably not making nearly $260 million in ad revenue when it airs raw in a year, probably less than half that. So to justify the cost of having the rights to raw, it would certainly help if you justify the carriage fees as part of that. And how much does total audience performance, total viewership really matter in terms of making a program a part of a covenant in a contract between a network and a carrier? I don't know the answer. I'm hoping to learn and share that with you soon. But at least one way that it's easy to imagine how total audience might be valuable is when thinking about other kinds of business that a wrestling company tries to do. You know, decades ago, WWE was a ticket selling business primarily that just used TV as a marketing tool. Like every other wrestling company before, you know, the, the territory era came to an end. You watch those old studio uh, TV programs from the 80s and 70s where you almost never see a big match between two different stars. What we do see are a lot of job matches and promos and angles promoting what's going to happen later tonight at the Omni, for example. But still, those consumer businesses exist for wrestling. And in fact, the merchandise business is probably far bigger than it was back in the day. In a non-pandemic time, there would be a ticket-selling business, and there is a merchandise-selling business, and there is a pay-per-view and if not pay-per-view, subscription video business. And I don't know that older audiences are buying tickets. That's something I think I talked about a few weeks ago is that I'm, I'm amazed, and I'm sure linear TV viewership overrepresents the older audience, but I'm just amazed that there clearly is linear, uh, the, the viewership stats that we get from Showbiz Daily shows that there certainly is an audience of people over the age of 50 who are watching pro wrestling in, in some numbers. 
even if they're overrepresented, there they are, hundreds of thousands of them. And yet, if you go to a, a WB event uh, before March 13th of this year, and tell me if you've been to one where this, this was not the case, you don't see very many uh, older people who appear to be over the age of 50 there. But nonetheless, it, it, it seems that anybody of any age could be converted into being some sort of direct-to-consumer purchaser, whether that's through the WB network, through a pay-per-view, AEW primarily selling their, their peak events through pay-per-view. But granted, on the other hand, I, I don't know that people over the age of 50 are going to be wearing uh, wrestling t-shirts, yeah, but who knows. But the key demo is something that I've been watching and uh, for Raw and SmackDown viewership before this this great era of, of the Wednesday Night Wars. I, I was aware of and I was recording and to, to some degree watching the trends of the, the P18 to 49 demographic and watching it descend more quickly than the P50 plus uh, for Raw and SmackDown. And we do see in the total audience and the key demo decline at a worse rate than TV overall. And, and that is one of the great challenges I see made, not usually towards me, but uh, sometimes towards some other person who, uh, who WrestleNomics is getting tagged against in the Twitter mentions when somebody wants to uh, raise the issue of TV viewership uh, WWE's TV viewership is down. Uh, WWE Raw this week, in fact, did its lowest total audience ever. Uh, at least the lowest total audience that we have on record since Showbiz Daily started reporting in September 2014. And uh, probably the lowest ever. The second lowest key demo performance ever. And to such points being raised, people want to know, well, but TV overall is down. Well, TV overall is down. But WWE Raw is down more. SmackDown is a different story, of course, because SmackDown has jumped around from the Sci-Fi Network to the USA Network to Fridays to Thursdays to being live on Tuesdays to being essentially a B-show to having its own separate roster. Now to being on Friday again, live on Fox. And as I argued in the, the full year 2019 report, I think a lot, a lot has been done to make SmackDown a more valuable property. And if... Uh, SmackDown hadn't been moved around on the USA Network and hadn't been promoted with a separate roster, at least for a time, for a few years there. Uh, it wouldn't probably wouldn't be as valuable as the $205 million average annual value that SmackDown does get from Fox. But Raw is really the control group here. It's, it's the program that's been on one network for many years, one time slot for many years, and it doesn't have these external factors to boost its, its viewership. So anyway, the total audience on average for the top 100 broadcast and cable channels over four years from 2015 to 2019 is down 14%, and Raw is down 35%. Again, 14% is TV overall. They're the top, top 100, down 14%. Raw, over the same period, more than twice as bad, down 35%. But SmackDown, with all of its external factors, is down only 8%. Key demo. I've got the top 50, not the top 100. So I'm not. this is just the, the data that I was able to find. I wasn't trying to cherry pick and do top 100 for this reason over here and top 50 for another reason. This is what I was able to find for key demo. Top 100 is what I was able to find for total audience. But anyway, top 50 in key demo, top 50 broadcast and cable over the course of the same Four years, down 33%. WWE Raw over the same time period, down 36%. So just a little bit worse than TV overall. SmackDown, though, over that period, up 5%. Yeah, 
because way back in 2015, you know, SmackDown was, I, th I think, had been moved to Thursday on the USA Network, but was not yet Tuesday Live, separate roster. And by the way, W has been very open about this kind of comparison on page one of its key performance indicators since I think about 2016, all the way up to the present. If you open the key performance indicators right now on corporate.w.com and you go to page one, you will see a comparison of Raw's viewership in the quarter compared to the same quarter of the prior year lined up on the same page right next to the same comparison made for the top 25 cable networks. And it's been the same thing for SmackDown, except for in the case of SmackDown now, they're comparing that against the top four broadcast networks since now SmackDown is on big time Fox. And if you go through all the instances of the KPIs, as of course we have here at WrestleNomics, we have archived them all on the WrestleNomics drive that you can find at WrestleNomics.com. And if you go through all those instances and you enter all those numbers into a spreadsheet for each quarter, going all the way back to 2015, whereas they started doing this, I think in 2016, but had to give year-over-year -year comparisons from the beginning. So that means we've got data going back to 2015. And what I found is if I average up the four quarters, so it's not a perfect annual average, it was probably pretty close. But if I average up each year and compare 2015 to 2019, the four-year compound annual growth rate for the top 25 cable is a negative 18 compared to Raw, a negative 36 compared to SmackDown, a negative 8. Again, that, that TV overall metric, top 25 cable, negative 18, raw, negative 36, SmackDown, negative 8. That's over the course of four years from 2015 to 2019. It's the moral of the story there. WWE, at least raw, the control group there, doing far worse than TV overall in the years between 2015 and 2019. And to, you know, 2020, in part because of the pandemic, but not completely, but in part because of the pandemic, doing even worse year over year. But anyway, let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. In, in the course of that five years where Raw declined worse than TV overall, WWE in 2018 finalized agreements with Fox and NBC Universal to get themselves in total a raise in TV rights fees that more than tripled what their payments would be. And how can that be? How can if Raw, at least Raw, uh, if, if Raw is declining, worse than TV overall, how can WWE get such a huge raise for Raw? And the best that I can tell the answer is that even though the margin of victory for WWE Raw over the rest of TV is getting smaller, WWE program is still watched by a large enough audience and is watched by a large live same day audience that is that's being watched by viewers who are not watching it through DVR. The live same day audience is large enough that it's still worth it. And if you compare Raw to the other original programs on the USA Network, there's a website called tvseriesfinale.com that organizes uh, TV series viewership by season for each network. And this is, apparently is, this doesn't include reality programming. So we don't have uh, Chrisley Knows Best in here, I noticed. But compared to U USA Network's other original scripted programs, Raw still about doubles its nearest would-be competitor on the UC Network in terms of other scripted programming. Uh, and I think I talked about all this last week, so so I, I think you get the point. But even even this week, when Raw had its lowest total audience probably in the history of, of the program since 1993, that's what, 27 years. Some of you listening are probably younger than that. But, but in part, that's the, the nature of media. The margin for W Raw may be getting smaller, 
but the margin is still large enough that it's worth something to these networks, worth hundreds of millions of dollars per year to these networks. And it's probably the case that, in a sense, the networks had previously been underpaying sort of the, the relationship between a content provider like WWE and the network, the distributor. The balance of dependency is changing. And wrestling companies have really always been dependent on distributors, whether it's back in the 80s or the 70s when they're just using it as a marketing tool to promote live events, or now where wrestling companies like you know, wrestling companies like WWE and AEW rely on it for the biggest piece of their revenue. You know, what's changed is the networks need content providers like wrestling companies more than ever. They need those content providers that produce live programming that hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people want to watch live as it happens. And this has resulted in a company like WWE getting more revenue out of their TV partner and really getting more revenue overall than it has in other eras, even when you adjust for inflation, when they were a lot more popular. And this is the great frustration for wrestling fans who dislike what WWE's doing. And by the way, I think, I think I've got some survey data in hand that it doesn't tell me a lot about the general wrestling audience, but it tells me about a segment of the wrestling audience. And I can't say how big that or big or small that segment is, but there's some segment of the wrestling audience that is increasingly dissatisfied with WWE content. And there, there is no economic punishment, at least here in the short term, for WWE producing such terrible content. Because I think I saw a Garrett Kidney tweet, you know, Yes, in the, in, during this uh, coronavirus time, people are starved for content, as, as Governor DeSantis says. People are starved for content, or people want new live sports content, because there's not much of it at the moment anyway. But then why, why are WWE's ratings not doing better than what they would be otherwise? It's because, as Garrett said, yes, people want content, but they don't want bad content. And some people think WWE is doing bad content, and in addition to that... They're doing bad content in front of no live fans, or at least they're doing content in front of NXT, you know, entry-level wrestlers. <clears throat> and on a personal note to me, the most interesting thing about watching WWE programming would be to see how WWE deals with the one piece of the show that they don't exude enormous effort to control, or that they're least able to control, and that is the live audience. And that's not going to be present for the foreseeable future. And as I wrote in wrestling, in a work business, the economics are the only real scoreboard. And some fans want economic justice for what they perceive as the bad content that W is putting out. But the old scoreboard is bifurcating into two scoreboards. And W may be losing popularity on that popularity scoreboard, but they are winning big on the financial scoreboard. I mean, they could be winning on both scoreboards. You can be enormously popular and enormously profitable. And I think in this sort of golden era of content, the more, I think there's, there's more overlap maybe than there were in other eras of entertainment where being critically acclaimed also means being very lucrative and it's not as unrelated as maybe it used to be. I think of Game of Thrones as an example of that, or at least what I've, I've heard of Game of Thrones. I did try one episode of it. It was just too much for me. But, but they could be both. They could be both very lucrative and profitable and critically acclaimed. But that is just not in this company's capacity under the current leadership. And there are no other economic forces, not stock analysts, 
not major institutional investor investors, not anybody who's going to write a business media article who's distinguishing very much the difference between good wrestling and bad wrestling. I think really to the to these to mainstream people who don't deal with wrestling a lot, it probably just good wrestling and bad wrestling just kind of look the same to them. Maybe it's all bad wrestling to them. I don't know. But mainly the people who uh, spend millions of dollars investing in WWE and the people who spend time uh, writing about and understanding WWE's business, uh, one business among a lot of other businesses that they analyze and write reports on. They're not trying to distinguish the quality of the product or they don't, they don't much take into account. And frankly, it doesn't matter that much that WWE is leaving money on the table by not creating a better product. I don't, and again, I don't think that they perceive what a good product is or isn't. Rather, what they perceive and what they distinguish and what they deal with is the difference between profit and loss. And the noise coming from TV rights fees is much louder than the noise coming from the lack of WWE and Vince McMahon's ability to create stars, as long as there continue to be enough people watching the product, which there is for now. So thanks for listening. I think those are all the thoughts I've got in my head for now. You can read the article I was referencing at WrestleNomics.com. You can get a five-day free trial of IndependentWrestling.tv by going to IndependentWrestling.tv and using the promo code WrestleNomics. You can encounter other listeners of WrestleNomics Radio via the Voices of Wrestling Discord. Go to VoicesOfWrestling.com slash Discord or get on the Discord app through your phone, however that stuff works, kids these days. You know, I am no longer a member of the P18 to 34 demographic. I retired from that demographic last week, so I no no longer understand certain uh, applications like Snapchat, TikTok. Is Discord a part of that? The the younger world. I know that Facebook is definitely for the P50 pluses, though. Speaking of Facebook, thanks to everybody for taking the survey, the pro wrestling favorability survey, if you if you still haven't, you can find it on WrestleNomics.com. Uh, I am working through the results and I am uh, organizing the results into tables and finding some interesting takeaways with many caveats, of course, considering just where, where how, how, how the participants were discovered is the big caveat, let's say. Um, but I bring that up in relation to Facebook because I did spend $20 on a Facebook ad and uh, I did get some people to participate that way. And I think that's that may be the most, the cleanest, the, the most uncompromised way of learning something about the general audience. Because everything is, everything is sort of compromised by virtue of these are people who from, from either primarily or some secondary way are, are connected to, to me and to WrestleMonics in some way. So I'm sort of, I get participants who are, are engaging with me and WrestleNomics or engaging with somebody else who's willing to put the, the link out there. And, and again, all, the, all that information is valuable and we're going to look at it and I will share the results uh, in the near future. But if we want, you know, someday ideally be sort of, what does the general wrestling fan think? If we want to begin to answer that question, you know, it's more challenging. But anyway, I've gone over an hour. I've, uh, you know, I heard my media distribution partners, VoicesOfWrestling.com, uh, talk about how uh, people should talk longer on podcasts, which has been against my intuition. But you know, my suspicion is also that I don't know if people really listen 
to the people that they listen to on podcasts, or maybe I'm just projecting and that the podcast, the podcaster to listener relationship is a lot more about just sort of getting comfortable with this voice and that you're kind of almost willing to hear this voice babble on about anything, which is likely why anyone would listen to this program right now. But anyway, thanks for doing that. You can follow WrestleNomics at WrestleNomics, and you can follow me at Brandon Thurston because I'm Brandon Thurston. And as you may be able to tell, it's almost 2.30 a.m., and I'll talk to you next time. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.